tonight, the World Economic Forum wants you to eat bugs. But guess what, folks? Now they also want you to give up your cars. It's Friday, August 12, 2022. I'm David Menzies, and this is the Ezra Levent Show. Shame on you, you sensorious bug. First, they wanted you to chow down on insects, and now, well, now, like the repo man on steroids, they're coming for your car. When I say they, I am, of course, referring to the entitled elitists who comprise the World Economic Forum, an entity that seems to be hell-bent on turning developed countries into third-world nations. This is due to WEFers recommending policies that amount to nothing more than pompous virtue signaling, which of course go hand in glove with their Marxist mission statement of building back better. As the saying goes, like so many others, I'm just a common man, I drive a common van, but apparently in the eyes of WEF Grand Puba Claus Schwab, piloting anything with an internal combustion engine under the bonnet is a shameful display of excess, and it must come to an end. As per usual, it's all about climate change. Or is it the climate crisis? Or is it the climate emergency? Hey, all you sky is falling climate chicken littles out there, can you at least settle on one climate catastrophe descriptor already? How dare you? In any event, as recently reported by the Post Millennial and other non-mainstream media outlets, the WEF is out to further ruin our lives yet again. Quote, World Economic Forum calls for those who own private vehicles to share them to be more resource efficient, end quote. Um, I don't like the sound of that, do you? But apparently the WEF paper points to three circular economy approaches to reduce demand for critical metals. Quote, we need a clean energy revolution and we need it now. End quote. Oh yeah? Well, to quote a title from a film released back in 1970, start the revolution without me. But wait, there's more. The WEF paper goes on to state, quote, this transition from fossil fuels to renewables will need large supplies of critical metals such as cobalt, lithium, nickel, to name a few. Shortages of these critical minerals could raise the cost of clean energy technologies, end quote. Uh, by the way, folks, did you know that about 70% of the world's supply of cobalt was supplied last year from the Congo? And that about 40,000 cobalt miners in the Congo are children? And guess which nation is increasingly controlling the supply of cobalt and other critical minerals that are needed for clean energy technologies? Well, that would be China. Do you really want the mandarins in Beijing to be in the driver's seat when it comes to producing the car batteries of the future that the WEF want us all to rely on? Speaking of communism and cars, the WEF is apparently a staunch advocate against vehicle ownership. Well, of course they are. They prefer vehicle sharing 
Hello, WEF. It's 2022. We already have voluntary vehicle sharing. It's called Uber and Lyft and so on. Oh, and it should be noted that the WEF has an ally in its unholy war on the car. That would be the International Energy Agency, which has told countries that they need to reduce the amount of oil supply to domestic consumers and nudge people out of their private cars in order to lower consumption. Yeah, the IEA's plan is to reduce consumption of gas by reducing speed limits, using more electric cars, constructing more bike lanes, creating cheap public transportation, and utilizing trains instead of airplanes. Gee, what a bunch of fun burglars. The IEA further states that in order to stop the, quote, climate apocalypse, end quote, governments must force people, quote, out of private cars because they are the biggest offenders for emissions, end quote. Uh, by the way, that's a new one, isn't it? That descriptor, the climate apocalypse. Gee, that sounds really serious. Naturally, the IEA's proposals include banning fossil fuel vehicles, and it is noted that several European countries and a handful of American states, such as Washington, New York, and California, have already passed legislation that will ban the sale of non-electric cars as soon as 2030. Oh, by the way, guys, good luck on meeting that deadline, especially you, California, where brownouts are already commonplace. Indeed, this state better start building new nuclear power plants, but it won't, of course, in order to provide the energy for the millions of new EVs coming online in the years ahead. Because those brownouts are going to morph into all-out blackouts due to the anticipated pressure on the grid. And speaking of apocalypses, could you imagine the economic carnage that would occur in our great dominion if we were to stop production of internal combustion automobiles and cease drilling for oil? The biggest economic segment in Ontario is the auto sector. In fact, Ontario is the second largest vehicle producing jurisdiction in all of North America. Auto sector jobs are good jobs. They are high paying jobs. But sorry, Ford and General Motors and Chrysler and Honda and Toyota and Lexus. I'm afraid all of your made in Ontario products are responsible for that upcoming climate apocalypse. So in the name of saving Mother Nature, please cease and desist production, won't you? What utter madness. Meanwhile, in Alberta, Canada's largest oil-producing province, maybe we need to deep-six that industry, too, in order to appease the Greta Thunbergs of the world. After all, for those in certain circles, the term fossil fuel is the new F-word these days. And forget the WEF and other globalist organizations. Haven't the Justin Trudeau liberals done enough vandalism to our energy sector with their own ludicrous policies? In fact, all current indicators show that Canada is heading into a recession. But forget recession, folks. Without vibrant automotive and fossil fuel industries, Canada will plunge into a deep depression. And here's the thing when it comes to the war on the car 
now being headed up by the WEF and their various useful idiots in government and the mainstream media. This is a battle they will not win. This is a battle they cannot win. For millions of people, including yours truly, a car is not a mere conveyance akin to, say, a refrigerator or a dishwasher. No, a car is a freedom machine. Depending on the season, you enter the heated or air-conditioned cabin, you hit the accelerator, and you go straight to your destination while listening to your favorite tunes or talk radio. <laughs> What's not to love? As for public transit, well, you know, Elon Musk said it best five years ago, I think, quote, there is this premise that good things must be somehow painful. I think public transportation is painful. It sucks. Why do you want to get on something with a lot of other people that doesn't leave where you want it to leave, doesn't start where you want it to start, doesn't end where you want it to end, and it doesn't go all the time, it's a pain in the ass, end quote. And here's another thing that the WEFers and their useful idiots fail to recognize. We live in a car culture, be it art, movies, magazines, books, music, our love for the internal combustion engine abounds. Put another way, nobody, not even the globalists, writes songs about solar panels and wind turbines. But when it comes to cars, well, let's sample a smattering of audio content from yesterday. Indeed, is there a greater pop culture manifestation of the American dream than the combination of cars plus rock and roll music? And yet, across the pond, we have Dr. Evil, or I'm sorry, I mean Klaus Schwab, wanting, you to, wanting to remove you from the driver's seat and put you where? In the back of some smelly bus? Um, no thanks. Similarly, cars are a staple when it comes to TV shows and movies. From futuristic rides to car chases, Hollywood has long had a love affair with the automobile. Check it out. Atomic batteries to power. Turbines to speed.
You know, I don't think there's any drama to be had if the Cape Crusader had to get around Gotham City by taking public transit. Oh, and by the way, whatever happened to the concept of leading by example? So instead of dining out on filet mignon and being driven around Geneva or wherever in a limousine, perhaps Mr. Schwab should get his fat ricotta cheese candy ass upon the saddle of a bicycle and then pedal over to whatever gross food service outlet is selling cricket sandwiches with a side order of mealworms. By the way, I hate to be impolite, but what makes for the biggest clear and present danger to the planet these days? Seriously, is it the climate crisis emergency apocalypse or is it COVID-19? After all, in addition to being forced to mask and being coerced into getting multiple jabs of an experimental vaccine, social distancing became part of the vernacular these past few years. You know, stay two meters away from others because you don't want to get those COVID cooties. But how, pray tell, is social distancing achieved when you are taking public transit? Be it bus, streetcar, or subway car, Commuters are crammed in cheek to jowl. And wow, you really get an instant understanding of how many people out there are paying attention to deodorant ads when it comes to lingering in such a biosphere. So from a coronavirus perspective, isn't a personal vehicle the most sanitary and most hygienic way of getting around? Yes, of course it is actually. So what happened to, you know, Follow the science. And it is not just faraway globalist folks doing their part to wage war on the automobile. Toronto's testicular challenge mayor, John Tory, well, he took advantage of the pandemic to add another 40 kilometers or so of bike lanes to an already congested city. By the way, what's the deal with dedicated bike lanes? As I previously mentioned, I'm fat, and the only reason I'm not circus fat is due to my cycling. I'm a cycling enthusiast, to be sure, but I've always cycled in traffic. I never needed a personal lane and a white picket fence separating me from motor vehicles. So is there something more at play here? Are bike lanes all about deliberately creating more traffic congestion? As if Mayor John Tory and so many loony leftist councillors care... They are within walking distance of City Hall, after all. They don't give a rodent's rectum that citizens from the burbs are stuck in gridlock. What a disgrace. Oh, it should be noted that Tory and two other Canadian mayors, that would be Montreal Mayor Valerie Plante and Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart, are part of something called C40 Cities. It's like the municipal version of the WEF, and its membership consists of almost 100 mayors the world over. The organization's mission statement is to, quote, half the emissions of the member cities within a decade while improving equity, building resilience, and creating the conditions for everyone everywhere to thrive, end quote. Hey, how about this, all of you mayors? Why don't you concentrate on, you know, picking up the trash, making sure the waterworks are working correctly, fixing potholes, shoveling snow. I know that stuff is so mundane and boring for you, but it's important and very tangible 
to the citizens to the citizens who elected you in the first place leave all that climate change crap to the schwabs and tunbergs of the world will you i mean know your role and shut your mouths already in any event coming after my beloved little menzoid mobile is the final straw and I'm so sorry, but it's simply not going to happen, Mr. Schwab and Mr. Tory and Mr. Trudeau. Indeed, to paraphrase that famous quote from the late, great Charlton Heston, you can have my steering wheel when you pry it from my cold, dead hands. this week, Ontario's finance minister, Peter Bethlen-Favi, tabled the province's 2022-2023 provincial budget at Queen's Park. And the first thing that stood out for many observers was that this budget sets a new record for spending. But wait a second here, isn't this a conservative government at Queen's Park these days? So why are the Doug Ford PCs spending money that would make a drunken sailor or a sober liberal blush? And joining me now for more on this story is the founder and leader of the New Blue Party of Ontario, and that would be Jim Carahalios. How you doing there, Mr. K? Well, I'm glad to be on the show, Dave, but I don't like what I'm seeing out of the Queen's Park budget. So I'm concerned about that, as are many people in Ontario. So thanks for having me to discuss it. Well, it's always a pleasure. And, and Jim, yeah, it is disturbing. I mean, for decades, uh, the Ontario Progressive Conservatives, they were never all that gung-ho on pursuing a social conservative agenda. But the PCs always presented themselves as being fiscally conservative and fiscally responsible. They were the so-called adults in the room when it came to minding the publicly funded piggy bank. So, Jim, how did we end up with all of this porkapalooza? Well, it's a good budget for a liberal government, and that's exactly <laughs> what the PC party is. They are the new liberal party of Justin Trudeau in Ontario. And you're right. For all those years, 15 years, we heard the PC party when they would go soft on issues concerning parents, like the sex ed curriculum. When they would go soft on other issues that weren't fiscal in nature, they would say, trust us, when we get in power, when we get that majority, we're gonna be good stewards of the economy. And as bad as Kathleen Wynne and Dalton McGinty were, Doug Ford and the PCs are worse. And that's not just because the new blue party is saying it. We have the Fraser Institute who did a study. It's not their first one. They've done a few in the last five years. And Doug Ford, like you said, out of the top, spending 25% more than uh, Kathleen Wynne did when she was premier, and a greater deficit on an annual basis than the Liberals ever did in 15 years. And that's excluding COVID spending, because remember, he was spending like that before COVID, and now supposedly COVID's over, and he's spending like that after COVID. And to make matters worse, Dave, we can get into this, no structural tax reductions, mm -hmm. tax relief especially for individuals living in Ontario. So many people are leaving Ontario and services are getting worse. Uh, we've seen hospitals close down and Doug Ford says he knows how to control the climate. Doug Ford says he knows how to do uh, control all kinds of things. But when it comes to hospitals, he doesn't know how to keep our hospitals open. Yeah, you know, that is uh, amazing, uh, Jim, because I'm going back to 2018 when he was on the campaign trail. 
uh, Doug Ford would raise the issue of his dearly departed brother, Rob, and he often talked about that anecdote when he went to visit Rob, and Rob was on a, a gurney in a, uh, a hallway of a hospital, and he campaigned on uh, no, mo no more hallway health care. And what do we see in recent weeks? We see entire hospital units temporarily closing down. So forget about hallway health care. It's gotten even worse. I mean, what happened to that promise, especially something that was so personal for the premier, Jim? And, you know, hallway health care would be a good thing now because now you can't even get in the hallway <laughs> under uh, Doug Ford PCs. The, the hallway is an optimistic thing. And you got to wonder, where Dave, like, where are they spending all the money? Because, like you said, they're at $200 billion in spending, 25% higher than where the Liberals were, and the debt is approaching $20 billion a year. And Doug, uh, Rob Ford was the individual who ran uh, for mayor and he was a city councillor on conviction. He knew what he wanted to do, and he had a vision, he had idea. Doug has no idea. Doug is a liberal at heart. And a lot of people like to defend him and say, well, just give him another chance. He's got his other majority now, his second majority. And he likes to say, I'm just the premier. And, you know, it's Justin Trudeau doing this. He's pushing me to do this nonsense, Dave. He is the most powerful man in Ontario. He's got a commanding majority in the legislature because 57% of Ontarians didn't even know there was an election uh, this past summer. Mm. And what is he doing with it? Fewer services, more spending, no tax relief. I wonder where the money's going. There's a couple of uh, examples that have come out in the last week where we're seeing where some of the money's going, but it's it's the it's the worst of all worlds as opposed to the best of all worlds because we're not seeing tax reduction. We're seeing increased spending. Hospitals are crumbling. Uh, emergency rooms are closing. It's terrible, and we're seeing the real Doug Ford and the real PC party. Indeed, and you know, Jim. I mean, when we look at spending. Uh, often simply throwing money at a problem doesn't work. Uh, it came out recently that in Ontario, in terms of healthcare administrators, we spend 10 times more than Germany does, even though Germany um, has twice the population, that's twice the population of Canada, rather. Um, so, you know, what I'm trying to get at, Jim, is what's driving this? You said uh, earlier, uh, the connection between the PC party and Doug Ford and the liberal Trudeau party. And a lot of people say, well, that's preposterous. That's cats and dogs. But um, how? Do, what's the basis for your connection there, Jim? Well, we're seeing th this is what the PC party is. And a lot of people, um, you know, want to give them the benefit of the doubt. And they want to say, well, who's advising him? If we only switch advisors, and that's not the case, Dave. It mm -hmm. is what the PC cabinet from Vic Fideli, from Peter Betham Falvey, from Doug Ford, from the advisors in the back, they are liberals. They love it. They love the spending. A week before the budget came out, Dave, there was a report that wasn't covered by the media. There was one outlet that just covered an inside baseball kind of outlet. Over $600 million of loans that were issued out by this PC government in, to ineligible businesses during COVID. So they gave out over $600 million in loans to businesses that were not eligible for loans during COVID. And the PCs, rather than going back and getting that money, they've canceled all the debt. So $600 million over uh, loans that shouldn't have been issued, flushed down the toilet. They're not going out to get it. They've canceled the debt. And that's one example of how this PC party for 15 years claimed that they were the stewards of the economy, that they would 
um, increase uh, our economic productivity. And they're not doing that, and they're making things worse. And they are showing their true colors. So it's not about Justin Trudeau saying, uh, threatening the the PC government in Ontario and saying, you better spend all kinds of money. No, no. This is who they are. This is the Ford. This is Doug Ford. This is Peter Bethlehem Falvey. This is entire the PC cabinet. And if you're a conservative or right of center like Belinda Carlios, you get kicked out and you have to defend the people by creating something new, which is what we did with the new Blue Party of Ontario. And uh, we're just getting started, but we've got to create an anchor in Ontario provincial politics because the PCs are exactly the same like uh, as the Liberals are, if not worse, as we're seeing with our most recent budget. You know, Jim, it's incredible how upside down things are. And again, more proof in the pudding, if you will, or proof in the cheesecake <laughs> that Doug Ford is not Rob Ford. I remember going back a decade ago, you'd have Rob Ford before he became mayor. He was a counselor. He'd come on the John Oakley radio program. He'd have a, a bulging file folders of all the misspending going on at City Hall. The one I always remember, I can't get out of my mind. It was like a $50,000 pilot project to teach homeless people how to stilt walk. I mean, you couldn't make this up. I mean, maybe Cirque du Soleil is hiring. I don't know. But Jim, the point is, Rob Ford would go through, like he would sweat the small stuff. He would go line by line and cut the fat. And meanwhile, we have Doug Ford doing the precise opposite. Um, again, uh, was it twas ever thus with Doug Ford? Because once upon a time, people saw them as uh, two peas in a pod. I'm speaking of uh, Rob and Doug, of course. Well, they have the same last name and they're brothers, but they're not the same at all because Rob would take the heat, right? Like, look how they just went after him for being a conservative. They destroyed the guy. They piled on him in city council. They went after him really, really hard. And uh, Doug doesn't have the stomach for that. Doug wants to make friends with John Tory. Doug wants to make friends with the... Uh, the elite, uh, the Laurentian elite of Canadian politics and copy their agenda because it's hard making tough decisions. It's hard figuring out how to grow the economy. It's easier to just write checks and make everybody happy. And on both growing the economy and spending, the PCs have failed. And not only are they, you know, they used to say for 15 years, Dave, that we don't have a revenue problem in Ontario. We have a spending problem. That right. was... The PC moniker, you know, you sound like a big, tough conservative when you say that. Well, now, actually, we have both. We've got a revenue problem and we've got a spending problem because not only are they spending too much, but Ontario's economy is not growing in the last five years. And that's pre-inflation figures. It's not growing. Hydro rates, which is the biggest problem that has tanked the Ontario economy in the last 15 years, are not decreasing. And uh, the way he's been able to keep them artificially down, not by taking down wind turbines, ripping up green energy contracts, by subsidizing those hydro rates with taxpayer money. So he's not growing the economy. It's puttering along. He's increasing debt. He's not reducing taxes. And services are tanking, like emergency rooms and healthcare. It is from bad with Kathleen Wynne to worse with Doug Ford and the PCs. And it's shocking to many people, but he's running out of excuses after five years in power. And, you know, Jim, who could have seen this coming? I mean, you mentioned uh, he's acquiring new lefty friends and also getting rid of old uh, friends or acquaintances. I speak of myself, uh, Toronto Sun's Joe Warmington. I would argue uh, we've given uh, the Ford family the fairest coverage over the years of all the mainstream media. I mean, Doug and Rob used to call the, the Toronto Star a, a bunch of maggots. 
And when we go to foreign nation events, uh, we're threatened with being arrested for trespass, whereas the CBC, the Toronto Star, welcomed in. Uh, it, it's mind-blowing to me. But, you know, Jim, when we look at the numbers, the budget, $198.6 billion, so almost $200 billion. The deficit, $18.8 billion. The debt... $427 billion. And because of rising interest rates, uh, the cost to service the debt is a, an additional $105 million. You know what I'm thinking, um, Jim? The big question is, does this resonate with, um, you know, Joe and Jane and Terry? And what I'm getting at, these numbers in the hundreds of millions, in the billions, I mean, it, they're, they're like crazy surreal figures. Yet, um, I go back to yesterday, uh, remember the infamous Bev Oda $16 glass of orange juice? That was on the front page. It's almost that like people can get their ha their heads around um, that. And by the way, I, I'm, I'm not one to condemn Bev Oda for that. I thought that was totally blown out of proportion. But they can understand a $16 glass of orange juice, but when you start talking $427 billion uh, debt, they kind of tune out. Uh, what's your uh, feeling on that, Jim? So you have a point there, Dave, in the fact that we've had 15 years of Ontario government spending to oblivion and people, you know, they've just been normalized to all the politicians are spending too much and, um, you know, things are really bad. And But what ends up happening after five years in power, people start looking around and they're like, wait a second, haven't we had a conservative government in Ontario? Isn't Doug Ford in charge? Why are my taxes not going down? Why are hydro bills going up? Why can't I get into a, a hospital? Why can't I see a doctor for my mom or my dad or my grandparents? And they start asking questions. So no, it doesn't happen overnight, but there becomes a tipping point because gradually over the years, people start looking around and they realize, hmm, things aren't really changing. Hydro rates aren't going down. Schools are not getting better. The same junk is being taught in my schools to my kids and I'm not being informed. The left-wing propagandists are out of control and the Doug Ford PCs have nothing to say. So it might work for one election, might work for two elections, but eventually he's not going to have anyone to blame. He's mm. going to have to uh, answer for his record and more and more people are going to find out that there are is another political option in the new blue party and we've got 124 riding associations set up and we're going to have time uh, with me back in good health to gear up for the next election and in between we're going to hold them to account for the billions they're spending the lack lack of tax relief and the lack of services and they're going to run out of excuses and jim we're almost out of time but Let's uh, look at a um, alternate universe where the new blue party comes into power with a majority. Uh, you as premier, you as finance minister, however you want to slice it. What would you do in terms of the Ontario finances that are different? What would be like your three main planks, if you will, in terms of undoing what a lot of people are saying is really damaging out of control spending right now? Well, number one is... You need a government, you need politicians and MPPs that have a backbone. And Doug Ford does not have a backbone. He's a total pushover. He wants to be friends with John Tory and he wants to be Justin Trudeau's puppy dog. So you need <laughs> people in charge with a backbone. And these PC MPPs don't have a backbone. And we don't have to wait four years until uh, the next election to elect new blue MPPs. We will do it in between, Dave, because we will call them out and hold them to account and inform people um, through our various channels of, of communication to contact their PCMPPs when they think they're getting away with 
spending that no one knows about because they rely on the media not reporting on it. Mm. You just said it. Uh, Doug Ford's not a loyal guy. He demands loyalty from his PC MPPs. He's upset because they didn't vote with him on who to elect the speaker, but he rewards the Toronto Star with an online gambling license that you could check out on ubleontario.com. You and I have talked about it, but you or Joe Warmington doesn't want to talk to, kicks Belinda out of caucus after I was good friends with his brother Rob, his late uh, brother Rob. He's not a loyal guy. So you need a backbone. You need loyalty to the voters who put you in power. And then there's two things that need to happen. Spending has to go down outside of healthcare. The healthcare spending has to be allocated and centered towards the patient, not towards accountability from the bureaucracy. We need tax reduction and we need to get rid of those wind turbines to grow our economy so that economic growth is matching the increase in spending through inflation. It has to be both a focus on the revenue and a focus on the spending with a focus on tax relief. It can't be just, you know, a little bit here, a little bit there, because Dalton McGinty, Kathleen Wynne, and Doug Ford have done such a colossal, um, tr terrible job of managing the finances that uh, things are getting bad really, really quickly. And the whole thing, the, the way they look at it has to be turned upside down. No, uh, well said, uh, Jim, and I'll urge our viewers to go to your website. There's some wonderful policies. And what you just spoke of, and we, did, we have spoken about this in the past, um, that half billion dollar gambling license that Ford gave Torstar, the parent company of uh, Toronto Star and all the other uh, newspapers in the uh, Toronto Star empire. Um, it, it was uncanny. It, it was like outright bribery to me. As a matter of fact, I, I don't say that lightly, Jim, on election day, June 3rd, uh, going back uh, almost two months, the front page of the Toronto Star on election day, and you tell me if this is a mistake, that uh, they had an ad over the front page uh, promoting their gambling website, and it said, bet on blue. I mean, there's no team called the blue, right? There's, you know, uh, blackjack, or rather roulette is uh, red and black. It was absolutely uh, outrageous. And uh, but um, all I got to say, Jim, uh, it seems that uh, the contrarians will say, but look at the results, uh, guys. Uh, he got an even bigger majority government. Uh, last word goes to you, Jim. Well, he got a majority government because 53 percent of people didn't vote. And yeah. uh, we got started just over a year ago. And not a lot of people, enough people know that the new Blue Party of Ontario exists, especially when he's bribing off the Toronto Star and the National Post and the Toronto Sun like to just talk about the PCs and they don't like to expose uh, what the PCs are doing in terms of becoming the next Liberal Party. And the PCs and the Liberals have a 100-year head start. They've uh, got these brands established for 100, over 100 years, but there's a lot of buyer's remorse even immediately after the election. A lot of people uh, for the first two months after the election are looking and they're saying, hmm, this guy put Sylvia Jones in charge of health care but didn't Sylvia Jones do the exact same thing that Marco Mendocino did as the liberal minister uh, for Justin Trudeau in terms of the lockdown and the Emergencies Act? In, mm. in fact, she went one further than Trudeau because she took those emergency powers at the provincial level and she cast them into permanent legislation with Bill 100 that Belinda stood up in the legislature and spoke about. And it's probably an unconstitutional bill. And yet he rewarded her with the second highest position in government, and you have establishment conservatives saying Marco Mendocino should have resigned 
uh, after being in charge of the handling of Justin Trudeau's handling of emergency measures. Sylvia Jones and Doug Ford did worse, and she got rewarded. So people are starting to open their eyes, and they're waking up, and he's going to run out of excuses, and the PC brand is going to keep taking a hit every day. And our job, Dave, is to hold the PCs and the establishment left-wing parties at Queen's Park to account and call them out in between and try to balance the narrative and change the course and get ready for the next provincial election. Well, Jim, it is always a pleasure speaking with you. As I said, I urge our viewers to check out your website, at least those in Ontario. And uh, thank you so much uh, for coming on the show. And uh, hey, good luck in, well, four years, especially in politics. That's an eternity. But good luck in 2026, I guess, my friend. Thanks, Dave. Talk soon. Thank you very much. And that was Jim Carajalios. He is the founder and leader of the New Blue Party of Ontario. And keep it here, folks. More of the Ezra Levent Show to come right after this. Well, folks, lots of response uh, from my interview yesterday with Lewis Brackpool. He is the Rebel News reporter uh, in the UK who traveled to the Netherlands to cover the Dutch farmer uprising and giving you the kind of information you're not going to get in the mainstream media. Carl Andrew writes, people who don't support farmers are just idiots and should take themselves out of the equation. Yeah, you might be right, Carl Andrew, or maybe they have bought in the idea that they don't need food. They can catch their own bugs, as the World Economic Forum is recommending them to do. Uh, I wonder what, how, how much of a hankering they're going to have for, say, a Big Mac after a couple of weeks of chowing down on crickets and mealworms. Oh, how gross. Dog writes, if they eliminate vehicle ownership, who the heck is going to buy them? The government? That means they use our money to buy our cars from us. Straight up highway robbery. And what are they going to do with them? Park them somewhere to rust away and become an environmental hazard? Logic is definitely missing there. Oh, you're absolutely right, dog. And as I mentioned in my monologue of today, uh, the auto sector is the most important part of the Ontario economy. Uh, Ontario is second to only one other jurisdiction in North America when it comes to making automobiles and auto parts. So if we listen to the WEF elitists to shut down our auto industry and throw thousands and thousands of people out of good, well-paying jobs, gee, I don't know, that doesn't seem to make sense to me, but what do I know? I'm not Claus Schwab. Well, folks, thank you so much for tuning in. Greatly appreciate it. Ezra will be back on Monday. He's on very important business out west. In the meantime, have a wonderful weekend. And as always, stay sane. What if I told you that you were going to be afraid to travel, not knowing if you were going to be thrown in jail, given a ticket, or treated with internment in one of those COVID quarantine camps? Well, it seems that's the new reality for Canadians. Alexa Lavoie for Urban News, and we continue to investigate the colossal damage that Canada border are doing to its citizens. Now, flying is synonymous with fear, anxiety, and suspense. In the past, 
Many have experienced an emotional roller coaster ride and huge monetary lose due to mismanagement at Canadian passport offices. Then it was the turn of airport with their delay, cancellation, and lost luggage. Today, it is the threat that hang over the head of Canadian for the application of the ArriveCan, the PCR test, and are the forced quarantine under surveillance. Isn't this what we see in country where democracy is in free fall and where a socialist, not to say communist, regime is installed? Where is the voice of the population on the decision that are taken everywhere? Yes, the ArriveCan application is a threat to Canadians, but it goes far beyond that. And I will explain. Unvaccinated people must present a negative PCR test, their ArriveCan, and still submit to a forced quarantine with a plan already prepared. You have still the time to sing our petition at noarrivecan.com. You can still fill the petition and if you want, you can chip in generously to give us the opportunity to challenge it legally. But listen to this. Failure to submit to ArriveCan and failure to respond to a quarantine officer, giving false information on not having a plan for quarantine, not presenting a proper PCR test, or not submitting to the order of entry, or even not disclosing certain medical or confidential information can lead to offense costs of $750 up to $200,000 and even up to six months to three years in prison. What the hell is this? Simon left Canada before the government closed the door on the non-vaccinated, imprisoning them in their own country. Since she has a son abroad, she felt the need to be there for him and to be able to travel for him. When in June, Canada restored the right to travel for non-vaccinated with condition, she made the choice to return home, but she never expected to experience what she did. This is her story. I knew that I, because I was unvaccinated, I would need to have a medical certificate or medical certificate, a, a, a vaccine, I'm sorry, a, a test to see whether or not I had the virus. And I did go and get a test and it was negative. So I was directed, I was, there was a table, went to the table because I was unvaccinated. They said, now what you've got to do is go into the area where everyone is processed to get through, through customs. I told the person that I, you know, that I'd done that, showed my passport, and then he directed me to where Canada Health was because I was not vaccinated. And the questions were around um, the suitability of my accommodation because I had left Canada and I had, and they weren't at all uh, convinced that I would be compliant in terms of the two-week mandatory she said okay I want to see your test so I showed her my test that I got done she looked at it and she then said I'm sorry I'm going to have to really find out whether or not this is a suitable test or not so she came back after about 25 minutes and then she she had a paper 
I didn't know anything about it. She said, okay, um, you have an infraction. It's $5,000. I said, what do you mean I have an infraction? She said, you have an infraction because your test does not conform to what Canada Health wants. I then said to her, could you show me what what kind of form I need to use? What's the performer? Because I'm not aware of it. And she then said, okay, well, you're going to have to go onto this website. I got tested and then with not even 24 hours later, I got the results. I had a positive test. So not only did it mean that I had to quarantine, right? I now had to isolate for 10 days. And the reason why I didn't have a RiveCan is because I didn't I didn't have a phone number I don't I didn't have an internet provider so I did try to um, um, I did try to uh, enroll in arrive can but I had to go to a local um, internet store in the little town that I was in and it didn't it just didn't 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 work and I've got a I've got screenshots for that so when I got to to um, the airport, I told the health person there that I did try. I had screenshots uh, to prove that I there was a, there was a problem. She herself then tried because we then captured you know the um, internet from the airport, which I wasn't happy about. Some, it's a, not secure, and she tried also, and it didn't work. So that was it, and that was literally the end of that conversation. So yes, I. I, I didn't want to do I can uh, the arrive can because I see it as I personally see it as a, a, a spyware, uh, you know, tracking where you will go to. But the the, the point is is that I was given a um, some information like a sheet, and I was told that within forty eight hours I was to ring this particular phone number to register that I had arrived at my destination, which I did, but the, I couldn't continue with registering simply because I didn't have a phone. They they wanted to send me to a quarantine camp that it was a, a setup that was going to be suitable to ensure that other people weren't going to get potentially infected by by me. I felt angry actually that I came back to Canada after what I had left I left in the middle of vaccine passports yeah so coming back and having this slammed on me it was like just more of the same and I actually said why did I come back I really regretted coming back yeah really regretted I just felt like I was in some kind of police state you know so yeah surveillance it was surveillance and and, and punitive. That's that's how it felt. 